All right, well, um, we're going to continue in our um, series that we've been doing. I was um, preaching for uh, the Palau's last weekend in West Palm Beach. What a weird, what a weird place. Um, it's beautiful. Uh, it's the only place I've ever seen a house that was for sale for $172 million. And it had 48 bedrooms, which just seems excessive. <laughs> I... You know, you just get curious. You're like, I wonder how much that house costs, 170 million. And then it was, it was like 48 bedrooms and like, like 42, 42 bathrooms or something like that. And the mortgage payment was 750,000 a month. <laughs> That's someone that just has too much money to spend. <laughs> like, I just don't know what to do. Just buy that house with 48 bedrooms. Uh, but it was beautiful, although I wouldn't live there. Uh, well, we're going to continue um, looking at the paradoxes of the Christian faith. And, and as I said in the beginning of the series, uh, that one of the things that can hang people up is the paradoxical nature of the faith. Uh, and it can be um, challenging because a paradox is, an, is what looks like an apparent contradiction when in actuality uh, there is, there is a, a, a harmony that occurs, but it, it doesn't come... Uh, it's not very linear, if you will. There's a dialectic reality where these, where these two opposing truths actually form a complete or fuller picture um, by which we can live. And Christianity is filled with paradoxes. Uh, in fact, it was G.K. Chesterton that said it was the, what he referred to as the insane paradoxes of the faith that led him to belief in Jesus to begin with. It was, he said the critics of Christianity couldn't even agree on what they were critical of. Some would say Christianity was too weak and too timid. Others would say it was too violent. And he said, he goes, it was the lack of agreement even on those that were against the faith that actually began to make me believe that there was something to it. Um, and so today's, uh, today's paradox that we're going to be considering is what does it mean to be a bondservant or a slave of Jesus? and at the same time, a friend of Jesus. And Jesus speaks to this reality uh, in John chapter 15, uh, verses 12 through 15. Uh, and there, there is this, this strange balance of, like, of what does Paul always refer to himself uh, when he talks about his loyalty to Jesus as king? He says, a bondservant of Jesus. But bondservant is an important uh, term. I, I actually don't like it when they remove the word bond because, uh, because a bondservant is a willing slave. It's someone who has willingly given themselves uh, to their master. And Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but now I call you friends. And yet the disciples would go on to call themselves bondservants of Jesus. And so it's not one or the other, but it is both. And this is an interesting thing because most of us, when we think about friendship, we do not think of ourselves as slaves uh, to our friends or to our spouses. At least you shouldn't. Uh, but I think that the bondservant is actually something that we would be wise to think of in terms of our commitment or our sacrificial service to one another. And I think that that's a really important concept. But we're so hell-bent on our independence and our rights to define our lives for ourselves that this is something that, that I think gets lost in the church, which is this call to be radically committed to Christ and that that commitment to Christ should be mirrored in our commitment to one another. In fact, I would go as far as to say, if you want to know how intimate you are with Jesus, ask yourself, how much am I sacrificially loving those that are around me, that I can see? I, I, as I was entering into a, a, a time where there was a lot of tension between Darcy and I, uh, like marriage, we're coming up on 25 years, and we were just, it was a, a season where we, just everything we said, it was like we were missing, if you've ever read Kafka, it's like a conversation in a Kafka story where two people are talking and they never seem to understand each other. It's the most frustrating thing. And we had a season like that, and I remember the, in, just recently, and the Lord really convicted me uh, because in my mind, I'm like, I'm close to Jesus, and Darcy's like, I'm lonely. I go, but I'm here every day. And she's like, yeah, but you're not with me. You're not, 
you're not engaging. You're not, you're not, you're not pushing into our marriage. And, you know, and I get all defensive. And I, in, in reality, the stress of life and ministry and all these things can often put us so deep in our heads that we think that we're with people just because we're in the same room, but we're a million miles away. And I realized that what was most convicting is that I, I felt the Lord kind of impress upon my heart, I feel the same way as your wife. I'm like, but Lord, I sp- I'm in the Word every day. I, I pray every day. He's like, but you're not with me. So it, it was the, I'm being a servant, but I lost the friendship piece. I'm being a husband, but I'm not engaged in the relationship. And I think that our, our human relationships often mirror our heavenly relationship, our spiritual relationship with a God. And if we can't love people that we can see well, why, are we, why do we think we can love someone that we can't see well? And so this is, I think, a really important paradox of we need to understand that our love toward others, our friendship with one another should be marked by a sacrificial service. Um, you know, it was Emily Dickinson who uh, once said, my friends are my estate. And I love that because the deepest longing of the human heart is to belong, to know and to be known. And I think that this is an important aspect for us as Christians because often when people come into the church, the question that they're asking is, and they may not even know what they're asking, but they are watching us. They're not just listening to what I say. In fact, honestly, when people first come to church, they may not really hear anything that the preacher said. They're just taking in the environment. And there may be some of you today that are visitors that you're just, is there, what's, What's behind this Christian thing? And, and I know, because I know what it was like when I, at 27, started attending church. What I first watched, I don't remember, I couldn't tell you a single sermon that John gave uh, my first pastor when I, when I came to faith. I don't remember anything he said. And it's not because he was a, a bad preacher or something. It's just because I was so taking in the whole environment. I mean, I remember more about the, my distaste for the worship music than I remember anything else. Um, but the thing that began to capture my, my heart and create a commitment to the church, uh, not just to Jesus, was the way that the people loved me. The way that I felt accepted and cared for. Uh, I remember I signed up. Darcy was not yet a believer. I signed up. It was, I, I went for six months before I signed a little thing. They, they, when you get, went in the, the church, there was like this thing, you sign up. If you're a visitor, sign up. And, they, and I'm like, no way, I'm not doing that. But I felt this conviction I should do it. I've been coming, I would sit in the back row. And, you know, I would say that if you go into church and you feel like nobody ever greets me, you have to ask the question, do you have a wall up around you? Because I put up a wall. I didn't want anyone to greet me. And no one really did greet me because I never gave time for that. I would sneak in the back and I would leave the moment I was like right as he was praying at the end to make sure that nobody could stop me because I just wasn't sure what I thought of the whole thing. But when I signed up that day, I remember Darcy didn't want anything to do with the faith. She was like, no way. I don't like, I don't, I don't, if, if God would take my brother, I don't, I don't want him. I don't want anything to do with Christianity. And she was horrified by my, my newfound faith. It was two years that we, I was a believer before Darcy became a believer. And I'll never forget, I signed up on that, that thing, and Darcy and I were in a huge fight over me being a Christian. And uh, because I wrote this song, a worship song, and she screams at me. She goes, you used to write songs for me. Now you only write songs for Jesus. <laughs> and like right then, someone knocks on the door, and it's this couple, a couple, actually the wife, who would become instrumental in Darcy's conversion, um, Dave and Claire. And uh, I answer the door, and they're there to greet me on behalf of the church. And Darcy and I are screaming at each other. And uh, I was, I should say, I was quietly listening to my wife scream at me. Um, and... Uh, um, and she goes, she goes, who is it? And I'm like, um, I go, it's, it's a, a young couple from the church. And she goes, great, more effing Christians. And stormed off. And then Claire was so bold. She was like, 
She goes, is Darcy in there? I go, you know what, guys? I am so sorry, but we're like actually in a fight right now about church. And she goes, I really want to meet her. I'm like, I cannot. And she's like trying to get, she's as forceful as Darcy. She's trying to get by me. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You can't come in. <laughs> and, and it was an amazing thing. But I, you know, the thing is, is that these, these people, like it was awkward. That's what an awkward thing to come into, a, like knocking there. But they were so gracious. And Claire's just like, we tell Darcy, I would love to have coffee with her, any, anything. And it was just such a beautiful thing because Darcy said, one of the things that brought her to faith, what, it wasn't the sermons, it wasn't me preaching at her, it wasn't, it wasn't any of those things. It was being, being treated with dignity, being loved well. And Claire was one of the people that she said, Darcy said, Claire shared Bible stories with me, almost like I was a little kid, but just because she loved me and clarified things. But I saw in her and the other moms that I met, I saw in them a light that was missing in my life. And it's called love. <laughs> so I want us to think about this combination of what does it mean for us to be both servants and friends of Jesus. And we're going to begin with this idea of love by sacrifice. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. I, this picture of, of um, the sacrificial laying down of one's life uh, is, is something that, that I think is, 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 it can't be understated, the importance for us as Christians to understand that life comes by death. And that for us as Christians, what I call the good death, it's the, it's the continual daily dying uh, to the lies uh, that we believe, to the lies that we listen to. I, I, I love, I just reread it again because it's just it's such a power. I've probably read it probably 20 times, but one of my favorite books of poetry is um, a, a man named Franz Wright. He, him and his father are the only father-son uh, poets uh, to both win the Pulitzer Prize for for poetry. Franz died of, of cancer um, a few years back. And when he had the diagnosis of cancer, um, he, be, he came back to his, his faith. And um, what was fascinating is that he was a man who was, he was uh, marked by mental illness. He had um, drug and alcohol um, issues. And so a lot of the, the close of his life and his poetry reflects it is just him um, like he's, he's, it's like he's following the AA pattern. He's just trying to put right the things that have gone wrong. He's trying to make right relationships. And he says this, and I, I, I think I've shared this passage before, but it's just it's so beautiful. It's worth, it's worth stating. It. If I could only tell someone the humiliation I go through when I think of my past, it can only be described as grace. We are created by being destroyed. We are created by being destroyed. I think that this is one of those things that we need to understand that if we are going to be a friend of Jesus, if we are going to be a servant friend, we need to understand that new creation comes through sacrifice and that we shouldn't be afraid of the difficulties that we are going to experience in this life. The first message I gave in this series was Jesus' own words. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain with you um, uh, and that my joy may fill you. But he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. I've come to give you peace, but in this world, you're gonna have tribulation. Peace in the tribulation. Life through the sacrifice. And I think it is a, a, a posture of self-preservation that actually hurts the witness of the church almost more than anything else. I mean, think about it. Why don't we share the gospel with people that we don't know? We're so afraid of what people think of us or what they will think of us. Think about embarrassment. What creates embarrassment? I mean, when you get kids into the, you know, that high school age, everything you do embarrasses them. Like, I dropped Hattie off at school, and I rolled the window down, and she just literally leans over. She goes, do not. 
which is her invitation for me to, of course, I waited until she gets across the street. I love you. You're so beautiful. I'm so proud of you. It makes me cry. <laughs> she's like, she, and she, later, she's like, if you do that again, you cannot drive me to school nor ever pick me up again. I'm like, man, you're so aggressive. Um, <laughs> but this, this, the, the, the embarrassment, it, it's, it's a natural instinct that is just kind of birthed in us. It's like, we are so fearful of what people might think. But why would we be fearful of sharing the message that we think brings life to people who are dead? Why are we afraid to offer someone life when they're hurting? I mean, what, you, we would rather let someone hurt than present to them the means by which they can actually experience peace in the midst of the difficulty. And you think about this, I mean, how many times have you seen someone hurting, someone weeping, and you didn't, you didn't move toward them because you didn't you know, think it was appropriate or it, was, it would be too awkward? Or have you ever walked up to someone that was, that was weeping? Darcy and I actually, when we were in Chicago in October, we, we saw this girl just sobbing on the street. And we walked up to her and it's like, hey, is everything okay? Can we do anything for you? And she shut us down, like, like, no, like, why are you talking to me? Big deal. It's not like, it's not like my ego was crushed. She didn't want to talk about it, but I felt the appropriate thing to do is that we just were letting her know we care. And I think that this thing, this, this fear, like we're so big on our autonomy and then the belief that we're actually honoring other people by giving them their autonomy by not doing anything. It's, it's the city's whole concept and why the homeless crisis and the tent camps are a massive issue is because it's being under the guise that we care about people. That's why we're letting them sleep wherever they, they want to sleep. But we don't care because we don't know these people. We're not engaging with them. If we give them somewhere to sleep, then we don't have to think, we don't have to feel guilty that we can go into our warm, cozy homes. But that's not how you help people. Do we even know who these people are? Do we know what their addictions are, what their brokenness is? Do, do we know what, what, what their traumas are? Do we understand the, 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 the multiple layers that are creating this issue? And, and yet, this is, this is the kind of false empathy that is often presented by the world. I'm giving you the ability to continue to suffer, um, but at least you, you can put up a tent and then I don't have to feel bad that you're suffering. That's the kind of false ideology that the church must go above and beyond that. And what Jesus says here is, says, this is my commandment that you love one another. What's interesting in John 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you. We often call that the 11th commandment. That there's a uniqueness in how Christians are to treat one another. In fact, Jesus says it's the first step in evangelism. They will know you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another, but we have to define what love is. Because love is not me telling my wife that she's beautiful every day, which I do, and that's wonderful. But it's also, it's the sacrificial reality. I am putting aside my needs, my wants, my desires, in hopes of fulfilling hers. That kind of, that kind of sacrificial life, if everyone actually did that, everyone's needs would be met, right? But that's the problem. Our own tendency towards, towards self-preservation and self-centeredness often hinders the witness of Jesus in our homes, in our community, in our workplace. No, we have to be created by being destroyed. And I love that, that picture because there's a certain violence in being a conduit of grace. Because grace is unfair. Because loving people as Christians, the reason it's so costly is because you aren't loving them for what you can get from them. You're loving them because you yourself understand what it's like to be loved in spite of who you are. It's the thing that Jesus, we love him only because he first loved us. That God, in, in a way, I, I've, I've thought a lot about this, forgiveness and grace we're not comfortable with this phrase, but there's a certain 
permissiveness in it all. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, the first thing that God prays over the world is a forgiveness that is not deserved. A permissiveness even. He says, you didn't take my life from me. I laid it down willingly. But Jesus permitted himself to be killed to what? Bring life. Death through life. There's the paradox. And not only did he permit himself to be slayed on the cross of Calvary, he also, at the exact same time, prayed that God would not hold it against them. And you need to remember that he is God. So Jesus is saying, Father, it is our plan for me to be both the judge and the judged in their place. And I think that this begins to speak to how it is that we are to love others. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to someone lay down his life for his friends. I, I, I love this because in verse 17, he goes on to say, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And I thought about this, you know, I'm dealing with the conflict, you know, with my dad just passing right now. I'm preparing a memorial um, for this weekend, and I, I call my brother, and my brother's like, yeah, I'm not coming to the memorial. And I was really, like, frustrated by, by that. And, I'm, and he's like, you know, dad was never there for us, and I don't, I don't, I didn't know him, uh, you know, and, I'm, and he goes, I know you loved him. I'm sorry for your loss, Josh. And I was like, I was so f- frustrated, but then actually I felt more than anything just sad, because I'm sorry for his loss, my brother's loss of not being able to have peace with my dad before dad passed. And he's right. Everything he said about dad is right. There's nothing he said about him that was wrong. My father chose cocaine over his boys. It's, it's true. He, he always did his own thing. He always refused to apologize. But there is such satisfaction in knowing when the scripture says, honor your mother and father, that that simple obedience led to a healing for me personally. Me forgiving my dad brought healing to me, not just my dad. And to be there with that man and to look into his eyes as he took his last breath and to know that that's, he needed me there and to know that he came to faith like two years ago, which I don't think would have happened had, had we not engaged in an attempt to restore some semblance of a relationship and it by no means was perfect and we would go sometimes months without talking to one another and there is there's regrets and all of those things but the fact is is that I put aside my what was lost for me as a child because Jesus called me to love and he didn't he didn't give qualifiers you don't well you can only you, you only have to love your dad if your dad is awesome. I mean, he pretty much removed all possibility of qualifiers when he said, love your enemy. And that's the call of the church. And to love our enemies means that we will love people that will hurt us and we will literally sacrifice our lives for their good. And we think about this kind of love by sacrifice as we, as we deal right now with watching the horrors of a, of a war unfold in the Ukraine. You know, one of the things that, you know, there's, you know, war is just an ugly thing. Uh, society is driven by violence. It's just, a, it's just the reality. I've, I've been reading through the works of Rene Girard, and he's like, everything is motivated by violence. Everything is motivated by the desire for what the other has, and we will do whatever it takes to take from people what we want. That's the nature, human nature in a fallen state. And we watch this war, and the things that inspire us, though, is when you see those common people that are willing to actually put their life in harm's way to protect others from the wrongs that's occurring. I mean, there's like women and children, and and just what can we do to help these people? What can we do to protect the innocent lives. And when we see that, there's a heroics that comes with this willingness to sacrifice life in order to preserve life. It's a paradox that is hard for us to get our heads around. And yet that's, 
that's what God has called us to do. I think that this beautiful picture, greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. And I think of Jesus' own sacrifice. We have to remember that God himself used what was foreign to who he is, sin, the cause of all suffering and mixture, to recreate what he intended all along, to turn us into vessels of grace. If God, who knew no, if Jesus, who knew no sin, would become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, this then is the pattern of love by sacrifice. Secondly, we see obedience by faith. This is another paradox. He goes on to say in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now there's a lot of confusion around this because we always say we are saved by faith, we are saved by grace. Uh, When we actually uh, look at the challenges um, that we are confronted with, uh, when it says, uh, Paul says in Romans, that um, no one will be justified by works, only by faith. And then James 2 says, um, you are justified by works through faith. And, and, you know, Martin Luther wanted the James, like, tossed out of the Bible because he didn't see how they harmonize. Once again, it's our struggles with paradox. Um, but there is a harmony to be found because we need to remember that our works, Jesus himself said in John six twenty eight verses 29, right, be, right behind me, he says, this is... What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Let me qualify that. It's not just saying that works are just your trusting Jesus. I think that what is really being stated, for we are told that we are his workmanship, um, in which we are to enter into the works that are prepared for us, I believe that when we stand before God and it says our works will be tested by fire and, and that which stands against that fire of God's testing love, um, you know, will endure. But he says whatever is hay straw, uh, it, it will just burn up. And he says, but the soul will be saved as one just barely escaping the flame. So it tells us that it doesn't take, it, it, the amount of faith in Jesus Um, is not the thing that saves a person. It's Jesus, no matter how small the faith is, and that there will be plenty of people that get in smelling like smoke. (laughs) When my dad was really fearful about coming to faith so late in life where he couldn't even walk and had almost no interaction with people, and, you know, I said just recently, you know, it says you will know them by their fruit. But that's a a general statement, (laughs) Um, because some people's fruit are like the thief on the cross. The only fruit that is visible is just, remember me. (laughs) That's the only fruit. I mean, it's not like he's able to get off the cross and do some awesome things for Jesus. He just, in that moment, he was immortalized by just the simple request, remember. That doesn't even line up with with our orthodoxy in regards to how are we told, you know, if anyone... If anyone, you know, uh, professes with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, he didn't have any, he had no idea resurrection was coming. He didn't say Jesus is Lord, but he did say Lord. He said, he didn't even say Lord, he said Jesus. He refers to him by his first, by his human name. I almost said first name, um, which is funny. (laughs) Um, he, He refers to him by his human name. He just says, Jesus, remember me. And he says, assuredly, yes and amen, you will be with me. And there's the fruit. For us, that doesn't really qualify as fruit, does it? Uh, In our minds, what what we think of as fruit. Well, let me just say that that for us, we can't use the thief on the cross as an example of like why we don't have to do anything either. And what I would say is that our surrender to Jesus the works that, that will stand the test of fire will be the works that Jesus did through us as we surrender to him in faith. In other words, Jesus doesn't just leave us to our own devices, not about getting saved out of hell and brought into heaven. It's about God placing his spirit into us and our surrender to him activates the spirit's ability to lead and, and move and speak through us 
motivating us, giving us a courage that wasn't there before. Because courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is discovering something worth dying for and being willing to lay your life down for it. That's the thing for me is like, I always say, it wasn't until I fell so deeply in love with Jesus that I could no longer be silent. I, had, I found myself a preacher out of necessity because I just kept talking about Jesus. Sometimes our calling, I wouldn't say sometimes, I would say most likely your calling will not come into as far as your unique the ways that God has uniquely designed you and gifted you by his spirit, your usability within the kingdom of God is, it will not be discovered until you begin to fully believe, A, that you're loved. And when that love so captivates your heart that you just say, I, I don't know what I have to offer, which is how I was. I didn't know what I had to offer. I just knew I wanted to do something. The first thing I did when I first fell in love with Jesus, the first thing, my first step of obedience by faith was just the simple thing I told the pastor. I'm like, how can I, I just, I, I, like, I'm so excited about my faith. What can I do? And he's like, would you, would you do worship? And I'm like, ugh, no, I've heard your worship. I don't know what I'm listening to. But I, I'm like, I, yeah, I don't know about that. And he goes, what about, would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to do some worship songs for our 6 a.m. prayer time on Sunday mornings before church starts. And I was like, yes, I'll do that. And I just, I, for six months, the only thing I did for the church is I showed up at 6 a.m. and I played two songs for the, our half an hour of prayer before, this, before service, you know, we started setting up. It was a teardown church, so like we met in a, in a middle school, so it was just a lot of teardown setup. So we would, I would just show up, to pray, play a couple songs for the, the team that did the setup, um, and then we would, we would break, and, and then I helped set things up. That's what I did for six months. Then I got asked to lead worship, and then I finally said yes to that, and it was volunteer, and I volunteered as a worship leader for over a year. And then Darcy, after she came to faith, then I got offered a job in worship. And it was just like, it was more of just, I just love Jesus and want to serve him as, as he reveals to me how I can serve him. And then one of the other things was just looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus with everybody I met. And that was a powerful thing. And I lost a lot of friends, but I also saw a lot of people come to faith. I mean, crazy stuff. Like, it's amazing when we are available, how often Jesus will bring you into conversations with people he is pursuing. And it's often with people that you don't, would not necessarily pick to talk with on any given day. I think that this is that obedience. It's not an obedience like, I'm gonna prove myself, Jesus, that I'm worthy. It's just, Lord, I'm available to you. Show me who you want me to talk to. I'm not forcing anything. I'm not, I'm just, show me. Who. One day I was laying grass in my, at our house in Spokane in my first job in ministry, and our neighbor, who is this very scary man, comes over and begins raging, like just freaking out, swearing, and Henry was only two and he's out in the yard playing and this guy's like freaking out because someone had broken into his car and had stolen his wallet and he was just like I thought he was going to beat me up like he was so and I told Henry to go inside and I went over to the fence and began to talk with him and you know he started opening up his girlfriend had just left him and all this stuff and within 15 minutes I mean I don't know because I was actually quite nervous uh, the Holy Spirit just kind of took over I share the gospel with him he invites me into his house which I'm like Oh, okay. So we went into his house and then I just kept, he started asking more questions. I was like, this guy is just, he just wants to know about Jesus. I share the gospel with him. Next thing I know, we're both on the floor on our knees and he's weeping, receiving Christ. And I think, wasn't, I was, a, I was still a brand new, I hadn't even read the Bible all the way through yet. But I knew who saved me. I knew in whom I believed. I knew enough passages. You know, I just kept throwing out John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that who's... You know, this was still the season where I was still praying to receive Jesus on a pretty regular basis. Because, um, you know, I just always wanted to make sure. I'm like, it doesn't hurt. It can't hurt. Um, and so, uh, but what a, what a powerful thing of just... And it was those kinds of experiences that just remind me that Jesus is just looking for people that are available to him. You know, Deal Moody, the great... Uh, missionary evangelist uh, from Chicago, 
that was his thing. He was a shoe salesman, no education. And he heard a preacher preach. It says, the world has yet to see what God can do through a person that is surrendered fully to him. And Moody just literally thought in his mind, he's like, I'm going to be that person. And he just stepped out in faith and said, Jesus, just use me. And there was millions of people that came to faith through his ministry. And this is before planes. <laughs> this is before automobiles. Like, He's taking ships across, you know, God used him to bring a revival in the uneducated pastor. Uh, Spurgeon actually befriended him, and all the pastors in, in the UK were offended by how uneducated, how rough his speech was. And Spurgeon said, this guy's doing something that we're not doing. We should honor him. In fact, when Spurgeon died, his wife sent D.L. Moody Spurgeon's Bible with all of his notes because Spurgeon loved this man's heart. Uh, for the gospel so much. He was just a man who was available. I love that, that ordinary thing. So I think this obedience um, by faith, it's not, it's not a salvation by works. It's I am saved unto Jesus who wants to work in and through me as I surrender to him. And I know I've been saying that forever, but it, it's one of the hardest principles to understand is the uniqueness of how God uses our individual personalities as literally carriers or conduits of his personhood to a lost world. Finally, we see friendship by service. If, if, if it begins with a love by sacrifice, a laying down of my life for the good of those around me, and it, it moves into an obedience by faith, I trust you, Jesus, as I lay my life down for you. You work in and through me. Help me move into the things that you have prepared for me. Um, it ends with a friendship by service. And here's, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Um, we need to remember that friends of Jesus are, are, are known and know. For us, revelation um, is, you know, there's a, there's a phrase that's used throughout Scripture. It's that picture of, um, of things hidden, and things hidden becoming revealed. For us, revelation is God's self-disclosure to us through His Son. That at various times and various ways, God's spoken through the prophets and through the Scriptures, but in these last days, He has spoken to us in Son. The mystery that was hidden, that was kept secret, is the mystery of the incarnation. For us, it's not about learning secret things. I believe that the church's obsession with new fads, and when I first got saved, the, I remember the first fad that, that hit the church right after I became a believer was the prayer of Jabez. Do you remember that? And the prayer of Jabez was like, you know, this obscure prayer in the Old Testament. I mean, it's like a two-line prayer, and, and basically what was presented is that if this is the secret power prayer. If you pray this, God's going to bless you. He's going to expand your borders. Isn't it like something about expanding borders? And like, you know, it was a prosperity thing. And it's like, well, if that's the secret prayer that unlocks the mysteries of prayer, why wouldn't Jesus say, and when you pray, pray the prayer of Jabez? Because he didn't say that. Um, so that's clearly not the way that prayer works. But people, Christians, like, bought into it and drove. So I shared that last week at, at the, the um, when I was speaking in Florida, and this couple had me stay the night at their house the, the final night before I flew home, um, and they, they secretly ran in. A, um, they had a prayer of Jabez little hanging thing that they put, they put in the room for me to see. <laughs> I was like, that's not okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with the prayer. It's in the Bible, but it's not like a secret prayer. Like, like God's like, it's, you know, that's like, that's a Gnostic tendency. It's the desire for, it's the desire for knowledge. Knowledge, when we talk about knowledge in scripture, we are talking about relational knowledge, not more information. We're talking about knowing the living Christ. Jesus's most dangerous words are those words in which he says, away from me, I never what? knew you. We want to know and be known. And I see this tendency of, of trends of toward fads. I mean, everything from Enneagram to there, there's the movement, there's this big fascination return to, um, to things like the 
kind of Catholic liturgy while still wanting to remain evangelical. It's like the funniest thing. I, I'm just interested in orthodoxy. Uh, and, and I don't have any problem with spiritual disciplines or practices. What I do have a problem with is the abandonment of the gospel um, because Christians are sitting week after week bored in the pew. And honestly, the reason we're bored is because we come to our faith with this desire for God to tell us something special about us. That church is a place where I can grow I can learn how to experience new secret information, new knowledge, but none of it means anything if you don't realize that the reason we gather is so that we can learn how to come around King Jesus and have him lifted up and our witness of him is found in our love for him and our love for one another. And if our, if our focus is on what can God give to me, we are moving dangerously away from what I would argue is, is, is the true gospel and moving toward a self-serving false gospel. And I think it's why evangelicals are fleeing the church today because I think Christians are bored and pastors have lost the ability to entertain them. And, you know, it's... Uh, it applies to all of us. We as leaders get sucked into these things. Like, I mean, do you know how many emails I get from random Christian organizations that it, the emails are always driven by how to like capture more people, how to, how to have a service that, you know, people want more than just the Bible taught. And I mean, I'll get, I'll get ads sent to me on like which kind of lights you should get to like really draw people in. Um, and I'm like, why would we do that? We got that, that. And that. <laughs> I, although I did watch the teaching recently, and I didn't look very healthy in that camera. So maybe we do seem, or maybe that's just me aging, <laughs> which is why I bought white linen pants. I thought it would help. Um, but I, I think that this this is a reality. Like that, I'm constantly being sold gimmicks on how to keep people in the church, and I'm like. What we need is power and unction. We don't need more eloquence. We don't need more charisma. We need the Spirit's charisma. We need anointing. And we need, we need supernatural agape love birthed in our hearts so that it can be poured out. And I love that Door of Hope has always been a bit of a motley crew. And I mean that in the best possible way. Even when it was just a church of basically only young people. There was so much BO that it didn't matter. There's always something kind of off-putting about our church. Um, and uh, it, it was like the, like the kid that's like, your church is awesome. It's like the dive bar of churches. And I was like, that's the coolest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> but I think that this, this power, friendship by service, no longer do I call you servants. They're still servants. But Jesus says, my servants are actually my friends. My friends are my estate. We're the body of Christ. Friends of Jesus know and are known. He goes, all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And, you. and you may be thinking, well, what, like, there's so much that I want to know that I don't know. Quit worrying about what you don't know. What is clear? What is simple? If we were just to obey what we do understand, we would find that, that our understanding would expand dramatically in things that we don't understand. Sometimes the paradoxes don't even become, uh, become anchored in our lives until we begin to actually step out in faith. It's like Moses separating uh, the, uh, with the staff, the Red Sea. He had to step in the water. He had to put the staff into the water. There's a, there's a, there's a step of faith that is required that you won't experience the the enjoyment of a thing. I, I tell you guys, I feel like vomiting every time I preach, and it's true. I get sick. I get really nervous and stressed out. I literally go hide out in, in my office to kind of calm my nerves before I, before I preach. And, but something happens when I step up. There, God does nothing to, to, to squelch my nerves. You know, you'd think after 20-something years that you would have no nervousness, but I get deathly afraid, and it doesn't go anywhere until... I open my mouth. And sometimes it takes even 
I mean, sometimes you could probably tell. There's sometimes I'm nervous, and it takes 15, 20 minutes of just kind of suffering through anxiety over communicating. And then, but almost always the spirit at some point, not always, <laughs> sometimes Jesus just purposefully, because he thinks it's funny, just withholds a sense of his presence from my mind just to remind me of how much I do need him. But I think that that, that picture of like, there's so much that we get asked to do that's terrifying. But it's not until we, we step into it that, that it can become life-giving. And I think that too many Christians that, that our unwillingness to take the risk. We're, we need to read Teddy Roosevelt's The Man in the Arena. The, the one who is willing to, to, to get his hands and feet dirty. The woman that's willing to get her hands and feet dirty. Pure hearts, dirty hands and feet. That's what we need. A willingness to move into the brokenness of the world around us. That's why it says in Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Notice, it, all that we need to know and all that needs to be done is found in Jesus. He has done everything that needs to be done, and he contains everything that we need to know to live victoriously in these days in which we find ourselves. I want to just close with this picture. That's my, that's my dad, like right, like 10 minutes before he died. And I was, I was holding his hand and, you know, when, um, when, uh, when he was getting ready to pass, you know, I share with you guys, I, I put the song on um, that, uh, that Eric and I recorded that was the last album I released, What's Done is Done. And, you know, it's, it's an appropriate song because it's all about our Heavenly Father telling us to quit running away, to, to, to stop living in lies and to, to know that he's never going to let us go um, and that, that he loves us and his, his provided a home for us and is with us. And, and yet, sometimes we don't f feel um, his presence. And, I, and I've thought about this, and it didn't strike me until I, after I had shared a couple weeks ago, but my dad opened his eyes the last three minutes of his life, and I stood above him. I was holding his hand, and I stood above him, and I had my hand on his face. And he opened his eyes right when that song started, and I looked directly into his eyes, and I just started telling him, I'm like, Dad, I love you. It's okay. You're going to be okay. And he was trying to breathe. He couldn't breathe. And he looked scared. He couldn't breathe. And I, I, was, I was struck by that because I just read that verse today where it says that Jesus breathed his last. It, you know, one of the horrors of crucifixion is you can't breathe. And he breathed his last. He says, you know, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And then it says, and he breathed his last. And, and my dad, is he couldn't breathe, you know, I'm standing above him and and he has tears running down his face. And I realize now that dad needed to wait for me to get there. He, he was scared of death. And he needed someone to, to be a servant friend. And to, to, to be there as a presence for him as he was ushered into this next phase. Um, and I believe that when he looked into my face, I don't know that he saw his son. I think he saw Jesus. And I don't think he saw Jesus because I'm Christ-like. I think he saw Jesus because I, in all of my brokenness and flaws and glitches, just made myself available to him in that moment. Because as a son, it was unbearable to watch my father not be able to breathe. It was heartbreaking, but Jesus needed my dad to know that he was with him. And I think that we don't understand that God wants to use you to make himself known to a broken world. He wants to use you. That people will see light in you when you make yourself available to the one who is the light. This is what it means to be a servant friend and you'll be put in uncomfortable situations. I will never forget what that look looks like to see someone pass from death to life. And it's a powerful and a mysterious thing but it's also a terrifying and upsetting thing. It's, it haunts me and it comforts me all at the same time. And, and yet, this is the joy that we have in this life because the best is yet to come. Because I get to see my dad in a resurrected body where 
Camel Reds, you know, and, uh, and cheap Russian vodka, which he'd be bummed right now because you can't buy it, um, uh, it is not going to be his, his comfort any longer. It's going to be the Jesus that he, in his primitive faith, put his trust in. Um, and I believe that God's grace is greater than our doubts. And I just pray that you would be a conduit of his love because people need, like my dad, to see Jesus in us. And it doesn't take moral perfection. It just takes surrender of life. Lay down at the foot of the cross for we are made by being destroyed. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for its ability to bring transformation to our lives. And we do pray this day that you would open our hearts and our minds to the beauty of who you are. That we would see that in the messiness of our lives that you want to utilize us as carriers of your grace. That we have the ability to be a comfort in lives that are hurting. And Lord, we got to start by taking care of one another here because there's people in this room that are hurting. And I pray that if we can't open our eyes enough to see the people right around us hurting, how are we going to move into the lives of those that don't know you, that, that want nothing to do with you? Lord, teach us how to love. Teach us how to be servant friends. And thank you that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. Thank you that you would say such a profound thing. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. And Lord, that we are servants um, in a unique way because we do know your heart because you have chosen to reveal it to us. May we know that on our worst day, you were crazy about us. And may we bring your love to this world. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopedx.org and click give from the menu bar. May God bless you 